shelf or mine i am becky standall youth services librarian here at the longview public library and i'm austin brigden administrative assistant here at the longview public library and uh we are recording quite late with our east of eden reread project apologies it's been a busy time here yes yes so y'all should have had time to read it (laughs) yeah that's the argument other things we have going on it's today when we're recording it's june 15th so we have summer reading starting in two days on the 17th we've got lots of fun stuff happening Mm -hmm. you can record your daily reading and earn prizes all ages can do that birth Mm -hmm. through old age and (laughs) um youngs and olds and um mediums too middles We'll workshop it. Okay. And we'll have an in-person family story time Thursday mornings out on the library Mm -hmm. lawn at 1030 starting on June 24th. We also have lots of book clubs. Yeah. Yeah. We've got an adult book club reading Deep Creek by Pam Houston uh, for the first portion of the season. And then we're reading a novel. It's called Migrations. Migrations for the second part of the season. So that is very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as far as uh, updates on the seed library goes, uh, you can still check out seeds. It's still a great time to plant. And actually, we've begun, we're, we're about to begin our LPL Seed Library Presents Speaker Series, uh, which is going to start this Saturday, June 19th, 11 a.m., for a talk about hardy fuchsias with Theo Margoloni, who's a garden writer based in Portland. Yeah, very exciting. I love a hardy fuchsia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a pink one. It's just blooming just now. They're they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous, and I and still I think underappreciated. A lot of people know the annual fuchsias and do the fuchsia baskets, but those hardy fuchsias are are hard to beat. And we'll be we'll be keeping you updated as we have more events scheduled. I know we're going to have Robert Michael Pyle later in the season to talk about the butterflies of the cowlitz in Columbia. We're definitely going to have a talk about house plants. A lot of fun stuff coming. Very cool. And we're recording in person uh, here at the library right now. Our library foundation bought us this podcasting equipment. And after some trial and error, we have it all set up. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's different. Maybe uh, hopefully the sound quality is a lot better. better and not worse. We (laughs) are becoming real audio visual professionals now, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. We're here in the MJO. Got the panda on my knee, you know. We're ready to go. So thanks to the Library Foundation. Yes. Um, And, I mean, they support our podcast, but also um, Summer Reading, all of the prizes Mm -hmm. and anything we've paid for has been paid for by the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't do what we do without the foundation. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to talk about East of Eden? Yeah. I've been waiting years to talk about East of Eden. Wow. So I last read East of Eden, I think, in 2006. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I'd read it. And I was, I don't know, 21, maybe. Yes, that would have been correct. And I loved it. Reading it this time, there was a lot of stuff I forgot. Yeah, me too. Yeah, for a book that I... So I probably read it the first time, I think, when I was in eighth grade. And for some, I was a weird kid. For some reason, I got on this kick that I was going to read, like, great literature, you know. And I tried a couple, you know, I think I tried some Faulkner and some Hemingway, and it didn't take. And I tried The Grapes of Wrath, and at that time, it didn't take. I've read it since. And then when I hit East of Eden, and the, this book just, you know, hit me like like nothing else. Um, and, and I've thought about it for all the intervening years, which is funny, because when I reread it, I'd forgotten so much for a book <laughs> I considered so, like, you know, foundational or whatever. Mm-hmm. So important to you. And like yeah. one of your favorite books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I really, it's given me an appreciation. I I love doing this podcast because it gets you 
sort of, I love an assignment, you know, that gets me doing something that I might not otherwise have made the time to do. But I've, I've heard of lots of writers and, and different people who reread certain books at intervals. And uh, having done that, I, I can see why that would be a, you know, powerful experience to reread. Mm-hmm. I was in um, Publishers Weekly did a U.S. book show online conference a couple of weeks ago. And I was in a session with Brian Selznick, who mm. um, is a writer and illustrator, uh, mostly for youth. And he was talking about his pandemic experience where his husband had been traveling when everything got closed down and got stuck like in Europe. And so he was by himself for months. And he said, I think he read Moby Dick like four times. (laughs) And that kind of informed the writing of his newest book. Right. So I haven't read Moby Dick, but I am interested in his new book. How many times did he read it? Four Okay, so we've only got three more times through East of Eden. Yeah. And we'll be there. But it sounds like he wasn't also reading other books. He was also? No. No, he just... just... he like, finish it and start over again. Wow. You know, I can kind of understand a little bit. It's such a big book, East of Eden is, mm-hmm. and I know Moby Dick is even bigger. Coming to the end of it, especially, you know, it's so hard for so many of us to have, like, time to sort of read things in in deep drafts, you know. So by the time I get to the end of it, part of me wants to go back to the beginning mm-hmm. and, you know, while it's fresh in my mind, you know, because sometimes it takes you so long to read a big book that you almost want to go back and refresh the beginning. So before you started the reread, like what were you most looking forward to about rereading East of Eden? I don't know. Well, you know, it's a book I'd loved and, and thought about for a long time and never, for whatever reason, I don't know, conscious or unconscious, never gone back and read or made the time to go back and read. And I, you know, I remembered, one of the things I remembered being really, really struck by with with Steinbeck in general and East of Eden first, in East of Eden particularly, is it's such a big book, mm-hmm. but it doesn't sacrifice any of the detail. You know, like there are, there are big books that sacrifice a certain precision of language and scene and, and stuff for the sake of the big sweep. And he does the big sweep here while also just so intricately, he, you know, every sentence is drum tight. You know, there's no, there's, there's, there's no slack in the book. And I just thought that was amazing. I was really floored at that time how some, you know, human being could sit down and make something like this, mm-hmm. you know. So I was looking forward to that language. And I love Steinbeck. There's, there's a certain, you know, sort of ineffable thing about good writers and their choices, their little choices of words and and choices of scene and stuff that um, I loved Steinbeck. You know, he'll just use a word in a really unexpected way, even though it's pretty plain spoken, you know. Yeah. But he'll use a word, you know, the weeds rioted. You know, I remember the weeds riot, grass shouts from the hillsides at one point when it rains in the Salinas Valley. And he'll, you know, he doesn't overdo it. Mm -hmm. But occasionally he'll do that. And it's just instinctive, you know. It's this like... Yeah, musical I, decision. I like the the plain spokenness where it's like saying something really plain spoken makes it funny. Like I mm-hmm. remember the one part where he's talking about the sheriff and the brothels, and he's talking about he says he was a family man. He went to Jenny's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's super direct uh-huh. about that stuff. He that was something I think I had forgotten about the book is how mm-hmm. funny Steinbeck is. And what a funny observer of people he is. He He's really good at making, and real economically, mm-hmm. making these little jokes about people and their uh, weird habits and idiosyncrasies, hypocrisies and stuff. Yeah. I think I remembered that it was sad and powerful, but mm-hmm. I didn't remember the humor quite so much. Yeah, I think well, I remembered mostly kind of the, the sibling relationships mm-hmm. in the book. And I think going into it, I was really interested in rereading it and and seeing what it was that like younger Becky really liked in it. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that's one of the cool things about rereading books is like it like just tells you about yourself, right? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. And the different like parts like I've reread Little Women a lot through my life and. Yeah, there's like different parts that mean more to you at different times of your life. And also you can learn about your growth as a person by thinking like, oh, this is what was Mm. interesting to me, you know, when I was a teenager about this book. How has your response changed? Mm -hmm. And And 
I uh, there weren't very many of these, but I did like underline stuff in my copy because uh-huh. I would have read this like right after studying like literature for a few years. Uh-huh. So I was used to like marking up, marking the... up the text, but I didn't do it a lot. But the things that I marked, I was like, oh, yeah, that's something that. Um, well, that's interesting. That's nice to have. I was never I've never been a marker up of books. Mm-hmm. I always take I take notes separately, which is less convenient mm-hmm. and less likely to be found later. <laughs> yeah, and I think when we were reading Jane Eyre, I was saying almost no marks in that book except for one particular thing that I had yeah. underlined. You know, I said I haven't read East of Eden again since that first time, but I have like opened it. It was on my shelf and I was like, it was, you know, certain books you love, like the high watermark of uh, prose. Mm-hmm. And so like if I wanted to sort of get myself jazzed up language wise or... You know, I don't know. I've been, I've done different things where you're, you know, reviewing submissions or something and you get kind of like, you don't know what you like anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you grab the book and you open it. And it's the kind of book where you can open it anywhere and read a paragraph or something and just be like, oh yeah, I can, I still have a sense of taste. <laughs> so if you've never read East of Eden, you should. Um, if you are worried about spoilers. We don't. We're gonna talk about it. Yeah. So, so this is the part. Leave now if you don't if you don't want spoilers. But it's such a good book, and I think I think that's kind of like the test of something that's really good is if you can know how it ends and still. Oh. Um, yeah, and and a, and a book like this that's so so much lives in its language, mm-hmm. um, as I think all great books do. Uh, of course, you know, because it's in the very, the magic is in the very fiber of the thing, too. So, you know, telling you the plot doesn't doesn't really spoil it. Uh, although, it is interesting how, like, I remember eighth grade me, very <laughs> foggily, like, I remember certain parts of the book that really chilled me. Mm-hmm. And he can do a sort of chilling little moment really well. And Kathy really chilled me when I was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Like... Especially at the beginning, especially when when she kills her parents, sort of just the blithe way she does that kind of thing. I remember really so chilled me. Calculated too, like the part too when she's like long planning the the murder of her um, madam at the right right at the buffet, yeah brothel that she's working at so that she can take it over. Yeah, it's just like really a long you know it's she's so, like yeah. Well, grow vegetables and then i'll get into canning and then she'll have this like whole yeah she plays a real long game story so that when she poisons her they can blame it on botulism (laughs) yeah well and he does her you know i don't know steinbeck does so many different kinds of characters so well but he does the sort of sociopath so well she's not and that's what's so chilling about her is she's so devoid of you know she's able to sort of play that long game Mm because she's so devoid of um emotion and like i don't know she's not like a charming villain who's Mm -hmm. sort of not really a sociopath she's just like a real stone cold um Mm -hmm. person no that i remember that really chilling me i don't know this book does contradictions really well in people and dark things in people and um i remember reading really cinematically in my mind always remembered reading the part about adam and charles at the beginning and the part where adam is in the ditch and his brother comes back. With and his the brother, hatchet. he had been, he had, they'd been fighting, right? And and he he ends up in the ditch and crawls into the ditch. And meanwhile, Charles comes back with an axe. And it's like, it doesn't happen, right? The, the possibility there is so chilling. I mean, yeah, and just the fact too that Adam is in his mind thinking like, I have to hide in this moment or my brother will kill. He me. just knows it. Yeah, he just knows it. And Charles isn't like a bad character either. <laughs> That's the complexity of it too. Is like. Charles isn't just bad. He does that really well. You know, there's some really tender stuff that goes on with Charles in some ways that Adam is 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 rather cruel to him, mm-hmm. you know, later on. And But always this sort of simmering violence, right? I just remember those things when I was in eighth grade, really, like, I just, and how deftly he did it. Or missed, moments of missed connection, you know, like, like when Adam has been ba- so badly beaten and his stepmother is nursing him, and he had been leaving her all these little gifts, hoping to, like, his own mother is dead, right? Right. She had drowned herself in a puddle when he was, like, a baby. Right. So he's trying to kind of win the affections of the stepmother, 
and he's just been beaten nearly to death by Charles. And Charles's mother, biological mother, is, is says, you know, oh, you know, there's more to him than you think. He's been giving me all these little gifts. And Adam doesn't say anything. And it's such a oh, profound moment of, but life is full of those sort mm -hmm. of terrible uh, or wonderful, depending, terrible sort of like near misses or connections. Yeah, it's interesting, like later thinking, so and he doesn't tell he doesn't tell the mother because in part he'd been leaving those gifts not so like they'd have a better relationship but so she'd have like a little happiness in yes her life. that's and, right you're right and so he wouldn't want to take that away by saying like right i was the one doing because she loves charles mm -hmm. and that's one of the happy things in her he, life yeah. yeah um but like later when adam's boys are growing up they have a couple of scenes where cal does some things where he's like you could take, he tells his brother, like, you can take the credit for it, even though he's more, like, supposed to be the right the Kane character. So right. this book is, like, <laughs> uh, multiple retellings, kind of, of the Cain and Abel well, Bible Well, yeah, story. it has a lot of Bible archetypes in it. Mm -hmm. But I think part of Steinbeck's whole thing is he likes the archetypes, but he troubles them a lot, right? So nobody's... Everybody, you know, you see these dynamics play out, but they're also complicated. They're more complicated than they are in the Bible, you know, in terms of, like, okay. the the sort of complexities of the characters. Yeah, but I also think that's, like, why he takes, like, a couple of generations to tell the, that one story. He tells it, like, a couple of times in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I was saying, we were talking about it the other day, that uh, I find the book starts, like, real more with like more archetypes where it's like this is the good brother and this is the bad brother and like Kathy is evil and um, as the story goes on each character is becomes like more and more complex and nuanced and as new characters are introduced they're allowed to be more uh, nuanced than earlier in the book mm -hmm. yeah and I like that. There might be some to that. Um, I mean, I think they're I think they're nuanced throughout. I mean, I think the early characters are too, but I I do see that. Yeah, he keeps playing with that story. Yeah, and I was thinking too about like the women characters in the book. So if you were going to take like the main uh, woman character in the book is Kathy or Kate, as she later goes by, and she's like you said, a sociopath. And I think she becomes like a little more complex at the end as she kind of realizes that she is. And right. I don't know, it's like disturbed by it in a, like kind of. Um, <laughs> yeah, the end of Kathy is And I guess like it becomes, as she becomes like a fearful person, I guess. Yes, she's motivated by fear quite mm -hmm. a bit. Yeah. Um, and in the beginning, the women characters are particularly like, like the first, like Adam's mom is there and then gone. Yeah. And um, Charles' mom dies of tuberculosis. Yeah. And she, yeah, they're just kind of one note characters. With an, yeah, with the, well, in that arc of the book, yeah, right. at least, because. The Hamiltons, I don't know if they're quite as one note, but no, they aren't. And then, at, like, but they don't come in until like yeah, that's true later in the story. But really, I think the only other woman in the book that has like a significant amount of development is Abra. Abra at the end, who's yeah. kind of like the second love interest of the second set of brothers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Kathy. I was still thinking about Kathy. She's so weird at the end to see what. Yeah, she's she's motivated by fear. She also cooks up this sort of strange fantasy of, and I'm not sure what it's motivated by, of like that Aaron, you know, she's going to like sell out and then take her money to New York mm -hmm. and like pretend to have, you know, been a good person, a reputable person forever, you know. Um, and she seems to have some weird attachment, and I don't know with to to Aaron. It's because he looks like her, he, right? Which is very uh, yeah superficial, yeah. <laughs> and he's also very superficial. Uh -huh. And when that isn't, you know, when that comes crashing down, and she's also dealing with like the some 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 consequences of her, you know, like 
one of the murders she did, you know, is sort of like dogging her yeah, a little bit. Really paranoid about uh, it. Not really dogging her that much, but she thinks it is. And then her body is catching up with her. You know, she's got like arthritis and stuff. And she becomes a lot less uh, cocky mm-hmm. than she was when she was younger. She's very cocky. But it is interesting because she doesn't ever lose her power like up until like the moment of her death because there's like that whole thing with joe who's her like you know the body man kind of yeah yeah and and joe thinks he can like play Mm -hmm. he's gonna play her yeah um you know she asks him to like uh get this this other woman like run out of town right because she's a possible witness to to an aspect of one of her murders yeah and then later she becomes just really paranoid about it like maybe she did the wrong thing maybe she should have treated this person differently and he doesn't know right like the whole situation but he he sees enough that it's like a vulnerable thing for her yeah he knows there's like blackmail potential to it so he tries to drop in um little things to like put her under his control mm-hmm. and she's just like no she flips it she, yeah she yeah. flips it on and, him like, her last action before she dies yeah is to make sure that his life is ruined yeah yeah and he's killed and yeah he's killed a lot of death in this book oh, so a lot much. of birth but more death mm-hmm. yeah she, her character is like i think that's kind of the i don't know it st- sticks with you it does stick with yeah well that's one of the things the characters in this book are so well drawn who's your favorite character my favorite i think is caleb caleb trask mm-hmm. um but i also really like um samuel mm, samuel hamilton yeah he's a pretty likable like character yeah 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 those two it's hard to pick it is. They're so different because mm-hmm. I like I like Samuel Hamilton too, and I don't I don't know if I remembered how much I liked him. I remember when I first read it, I liked Lee a lot, mm-hmm. which we can talk about Lee. It was interesting to reread this book and sort of trying to weigh. You know, this book was published in 1952, and trying to sort of weigh it against sort of a modern perspective on stuff i think it holds up pretty well i think it holds up probably a lot better than a lot of books written in 1952 do yes um, there's like a couple of like words so you're like sure you know you wouldn't use now and no um there's some like sensitivity issues around mm-hmm. disability and stuff yeah but in terms of and it's complicated we were talking about this the other day lee's character so lee right is the chinese manservant of the well more than a manservant he starts out as the manservant for adam trask who's mm-hmm. got an inheritance and he's pretty wealthy and then after the twins are born and kathy shoots adam and leaves <laughs> uh uh lee raises the boys on his own is the confidant to adam um yeah, yeah. he makes takes care of adam. basically yeah he keeps all of the household running and the yeah. finances and cooks and cleans and he does everything he's an amazing character he's an amazing character it's funny when we're like recounting that stuff you don't realize as you're going along so much happens in this book and then you try to explain mm-hmm. well right after the twins were born and kathy shot him and then uh, you know and it's like <laughs> but no we were we were talking about lee and I think Steinbeck does this pretty well. He's like a, a full character, you know, and a growing character. He he grows over the course yeah. of his life in the book. Life in the book in a couple of ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I think his decision after a long time not to go to San Francisco and start the bookstore is is a, is a growth mm-hmm. or like a or a divergent path sort of decision for him, and then and then his relationship ultimately with Abra. Abra. I think and and all of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, his relationships get so deep. Yeah, but I feel like so it's it it is difficult because he is like he is a three dimensional character and he he's like one of the best people. I think him and Samuel <laughs> in are the like, book or yeah, they're like the best people. So they like yeah. care about other people. Right, they're interested in like knowledge and learning. Right, Lee is super smart. He mm-hmm. reminds me in certain ways of Ed Ricketts from Cannery Rose, another character I really like. He's just like sort of on it mm-hmm. about everything. He's yeah. the, but. But at the same time, like the bulk of his 
character work in the in the book is to serve you know this white family yeah. these white men um yeah t- totally yeah and and, and yeah to, and at a certain point it to crosses teach them things right. that like maybe they should have figured out on their yeah. own at a certain point it does seem like the the service relationship changes yeah into just almost just a f- real familial one and toward the mm-hmm. end but but i think that's what's so great with the relationship with abra at the end because it kind of lets that character kind of transcend that like servant stereotype because his relationship with her is like a paternal relationship a paternal one. and it's totally voluntary on both right. of their parts like she which is also a re- significant thing in yeah. 19 this is set in this the would have been twenties then, no, because it was. Uh, I don't know how many years w- passed in this. World book. War One. World War One. So it's like the late teens. Mm-hmm. You know that that's a pretty significant thing yeah. in that era in California. This this relationship between this chi- middle aged Chinese man and this uh, white woman and a teenage girl. Teenage yeah. girl. Yeah. So she, you know, she has a father who provides for her, and <laughs> you know, like a family. He's not great. Life. He's yeah. He's not great. He's like an embezzler. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> that's only like real like surface. You know, you have to. He Steinbeck's really good at like stirring in a lot of extra stuff that's just sort of like. Yeah. in there like he doesn't go into it but he hints at yeah she's an embezzler and like he's an embezzler and the mother doesn't want her to do anything mm-hmm. and is super they're like you know yeah so she doesn't like need him to do stuff for her no she which doesn't is, need him of course different she needs him emotionally than the relationship between like with him and caleb and aaron yes. and he doesn't have to take responsibility for her no so they're able to have just like, like a, a genuine relationship a genuine uh relationship which is really nice yeah, and we I were, think go ahead. ultimately kind of like the most healthy and satisfying relationship in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And we had talked about, you know, is Lee sort of like a magical mm-hmm. Negro character, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the, and I don't know. I mean, he could be. I think if he was, if, I think if it wasn't done as well as Steinbeck mm-hmm. does it, he certainly would be. And there's only parts in the book where that's done more. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But he does, and he has a full sort of backstory, terrible backstory. Oh, gosh. Um, there's a few, like, terrible, terrible. The violence is very, like, frank. Uh, his mother's death, um, the death of Ethel, that witness. Mm-hmm. She's she's thrown off of, they think, thrown off of one of the fishing boats. She's a prostitute. And uh, drowns, mm-hmm. you know, and is found on the beach. Like, like all these, yeah, there's a lot of real stark stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom's death, Desi's death, mm-hmm. Luna's death, Luna's death. I mean, you know, Adam's like debilitated at the end. A lot of suicide. Yeah, it's a great read, uh, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, no, but it it really is. It has so much in it. It's so there's just so much in it. And I was I was telling Becky, you know, I was pretty fascinated with it when I was younger. And there's a book. I'm gonna have to hunt it down now. When Steinbeck was writing it, it's just very interesting. Like book in his career when he was writing it his editor was pascal cavici and he like bought this ledger this book and when he would warm up to write each day he would first start by writing a letter to uh his friend pat i don't know if he eventually sent them to him you know but it was like an exercise and then he would go into the book and uh and he talks you read those letters and he talks a lot about how he had been sort of holding this book back for many years he'd written I don't know, at that time, he had written quite a few books by then. This is after Grapes of Wrath and the Indubious Battle and Tortilla Flats and the Red Pony and all of this stuff. And so I think this book is a really peculiar achievement in that it it has that sort of energy and intimacy of a first novel. It has that everythingness. And he uses um, certainly the place he grew up and his most sort of intimate observations of, mm-hmm. of you know his family and people and his community in a way that you'd see a lot in first novels, but he did it like for his like, I don't know, 10th book or something. So there's that craftsmanship, you know, that I think he had really gotten down by that point. Makes it such an interesting book. And he was like saving the story until he had the skills to write. He did, he did, which most, you know, is an unusual thing, I think. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of first novels and wonderful first novels, they have that sort of everything up to now Mm -hmm. quality. Um, and he he saved it, which isn't to say that his earlier books aren't full of of the place he grew up. But and it was such an him. He he you, yeah. You read those letters, and he knows. 
And he's, he knows sort of what his limits are and what mm-hmm. he can do. I think he was in his 40s when he wrote it. Yeah, and I think he said that this was his favorite book that he... I think so, or one of them. he thought it was his best book. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, have you have you read much other Steinbeck? No. I was going to talk about the dedication. No, oh, I yeah, haven't. Please. I read just what I read in school. So, I, you know, in middle school, I think we read The Pearl... And then in high school, we read Of Mice and Men. An unfortunate uh, thing of Steinbeck's, I think, is that he is taught so much to young people who then reflexively dislike him. I liked him when I, I mean, I, li- I liked a lot of the stuff that we read in like English class and, and high school and middle school, though. So, uh, and like Of Mice and Men is really short. So it's not like, you know, a burden to read or anything. It's really like, compelling and it's like so referenced in our culture that um i think you know for young people to read it they're like oh i get this all this stuff now mm-hmm. and i remember i had an english teacher who often would show us like clips from the simpsons or like you know something after we'd read something be like now you'll understand this reference because you've read <laughs> this book yeah Cause they you know that should in particular there's a lot of it and they'd reference a lot of things yeah um but that's all I've read. I started to try tried to read Grapes of Wrath a couple of times when I was a teenager, and I never... You never finished it? No. It's, you know, that was one thing I was going to talk about, too, that I thought a lot about is I eventually did read Grapes of Wrath, and I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a good book. Um, and and the vignettes he does and, the you know, the way he's able to write, you know, there's that sort of trio of political books, um, In Dubious Battle and Of Mice of Many all wrote together in sort of the same period. And... Uh, there's something though, and those are the rightly, you know, masterpieces and stuff, but there's something about the later books, East of Eden on, that I think he gets more expansive, more humane, you know, sort of more, you know, he gets this more, people are more complicated. And especially like, I don't know, it seemed like, and I think this is why I liked this book so much when I read it, um, like when I was 21, is because the book is about people being complicated. And it that's kind of, it's like what it gets to at the end. It's like you have... It's the point of, yeah, if there's a theme, it's sort of like, you know, and it's an interesting contrast to do, you know, they refer to that uh, Hebrew translation of the Mm -hmm. word, Timshel, thou mayest, that comes up through the book. He marries that to these, like, this idea of dichotomies. Mm -hmm. And then he sort of breaks them down, right? So it starts to grand, biblical, Mm -hmm. you know, archetypal, and then... And he sort of is very forgiving mm-hmm. of his characters, I think. There's a tenderness and a sort of forgivingness of, of these people who are so, they're people. They're real mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have impulses to be cruel. Right. Um, Jealousies. Uh, you can be conscious of that and, and change it. Yeah. Which is like, that's what Caleb's story is. Yeah. is about his like cruel impulses but also the guilt of having them an awareness an awareness and like an attempt to be better and do better and also honesty a sort of honesty of of say in love whether you love the person whether you really see people or whether you see Mm -hmm. sort of projections and that comes up a lot yeah the the ability to see other people as complex yeah yeah so you have like a character like Aaron who's you know the opposite kind of of Caleb who is very simple he wants things to be just so yeah um he you know he gets into religion and so everything has to be pure pure and straight narrow right and he doesn't have room for like complexity yeah mistakes or well and he falls in love with Abra but he doesn't really fall in love with Abra Mm -hmm. and that sort of becomes clear in the book not with her but with some idea yeah which his father had done too yeah his father had basically fallen prey to a sociopath Mm -hmm. because he sort of had this romantic vision and that sort of wrecks him in a certain way changes him certainly Mm -hmm. but you're gonna look at the dedication yes so it's dedicated to Pascal Covici um, and I think even the way that they wrote that he wrote the dedication is very very beautiful mm-hmm. it says dear pat you came upon me carving some kind of little figure out of wood and you said why don't you make something for me i asked you what you wanted and you said a box what for to put things in what things whatever you have you said well here's your box nearly everything i have is in it and it is not full 
pain and excitement are in it and feeling good or bad and evil thoughts and good thoughts, the pleasure of design and some despair and the indescribable joy of creation. And on top of these are all the gratitude and love I have for you. And still the box is not full. John. Yeah. I just love that. It's a beautiful dedication. He was so good at that. Yeah. The box is not full. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also really describes kind of like what you were saying that what the stuff that you really love about the book that it's full of all of the stuff. Yeah, and it is the kind of book I could see I'd re- read it again. You know, mm-hmm. you could return. I could just read it again right now. You know, because it is just so full of of that. One of the things that's really interesting about this book too is how much it's based off of like real people in Steinbeck's life. So the Hamilton family is his mom's family and right. and so samuel hamilton was actually his grandfather i know yeah these changed you know a lot of stuff yeah and i don't know like, how much personalities and things were based mm-hmm. on but and like the timeline of his life is different right but there's like easter eggs almost yeah. in the book of these little like where the plot of the book brushes against john steinbeck and you'll mm-hmm. kind of know like Oh, yeah. And, and Olive says, Hamilton married Ernest Steinbeck. And you'll be like, oh. And he's, <laughs> he inserts himself just a couple of times where he's like, you know, yeah. and Olive. He talks about his mother. And yeah. Olive was my mother. But yeah. then like he never is talks about his like. He's a character. Yeah. But just like the and most how minor character. He makes himself a. Yeah. Because I've been thinking about that. Because I always think about novels and sort of like something is said in the novel. Is it? Is the author responsible for it? Or is it like a character? And he is. He kind of creates a character of himself who's mm-hmm. telling the story. Yeah, he's the narrator of the story. And he goes off and tells these vignettes mm-hmm. but about I, history. I was thinking what you were saying about Abra's father. Yeah. I think part of the reason he's able to touch on these like little side stories is because yeah. they're real. Yeah. Like and They're maybe, so good. Yeah, He'll this, just hint it. This was oh, like this a whole thing happened. Yeah, like a person that lived in their town that he knew mm-hmm. and like just brush against it and kind of just move on yeah. to his... which is part of why the book feels so expansive mm-hmm. too. I mean, it is expansive in its plot, but it's also, it touches mm-hmm. so much stuff. Like it makes it feel so expansive. Like it could go off in any direction. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely parts where you're like, I'd like more, <laughs> you know. Sure. But finely drawn scenes too. Just the scenes are so... One of my favorite scenes in the book is when Adam gets a car Mm. and (laughs) the ford yeah what's the hamilton who sells in the car will hamilton will he's an interesting character he's got the midas touch of the hamilton family he's conservative and a businessman um yes so he he hates automobiles he hates fords but he sells them and he makes a lot of money (laughs) um but he drives out the car to the ranch to deliver it and uh, can't get it started again (laughs) he doesn't know what he's doing so he just leaves and sends the mechanic out the next day and the mechanic has this whole thing where he comes in kind of like how we would think of a stereotypical like it person who's like you guys don't know anything you're like boneheads you try turning it off and turning it back on and lee is able to just like charm him into a reversal he does the whole call me joe and they find out at the end like his name is roy Roy. and they're like why did you say to call you joe and he says because my name is roy <laughs> but it's just like a comical scene. That's a really funny scene. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. And then there's like a lot of work to starting one of those yeah. old cars. It's like flip this, do that, oh, yeah. run around. Or, you know, it. another funny scene is the one we just alluded to where he talks about his mother, Olive, mm-hmm. and how she sort of, she becomes sort of personally enraged by World War One by the loss of some of the boys from their town. And so she gets really into selling like, liberty bonds and becomes such a liberty bond saleswoman that they like offer her a plane ride she doesn't how does he put it he says she doesn't believe planes exist it's fundamentally against the core of her being she just does not believe they exist but she goes up she she, prepares to she believes she's going to die she like writes her will and wears clean underwear and stuff and then she gets up there and there's a misunderstanding between her and the pilot between whether she wants stunts and she just keeps nodding because she thinks they're dying, like the plane is going down. And so he keeps doing wilder and wilder. It's just so funny. <laughs> and I think of Steinbeck like, say, Will Hamilton, mm-hmm. relatively minor character mm-hmm. in certain ways. But like Steinbeck is not lazy about anybody in this book. Mm-hmm. He draws all these characters. Will Will Hamilton's a profound character. He's sort of this conservative for his family, a business type person. He kind of affects a dispassionate kind mm-hmm. of attitude, but he's not really dispassionate. It's all sort of, he's sort of the black sheep in a weird way. And and it's all sort of to, to, to hopefully please his family. And uh, 
I just think how a lazier writer might not have drawn all mm -hmm. these little like peripheral characters so deeply, but he does. They're all so deep. Yeah. Or he goes off on those comical scenes, mm -hmm. which, you know, you could imagine him not having done that, but it adds so much richness to the book. Yeah. And it just shows how people have like, yeah, full lives and like Adam's life isn't all just one tragedy after the other, which kind of in the beginning it no, is. No, although it is. Although Adam is such an interesting character, right? He, I like, Ad like in the first part of the book, I like Adam a lot. Like Adam's very likable and he's sort of like eccentric and tender hearted. You know, he goes off to fight in the Indian Wars, but he, like, never kills anybody. He's, like, always miss shooting off. Missing. Yeah, like, he doesn't want to do it. His father makes him yeah. enjoy it. And his father had this week-long career as a <laughs> private. That's also very funny. In the in the Civil War. And then. And, uh, he somehow, like, slowly builds it and parlays it into this, like, he was everywhere. He was at Appomattox. You know, he was at Shiloh. Yeah, he was. He's uh, a military advisor to presidents, mm -hmm. like, and he actually is. And it, he, it's, like, it's builds, a con, yeah, but, 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 but not necessarily consciously. He just really like he tells a lie and convinces himself, and he's able to like turn yeah. himself into a war hero, even though he never. Yeah, although was. his life is sad too, because ultimately at the end he's built this whole like he's this revered mm -hmm. figure. You know, the pre vice president brings a wreath to his funeral and stuff, but he's lonely. Mm -hmm. Amidst all of the yeah, he treat, power circles, trying he's to get Adam to come and visit yeah. him, and he doesn't. And Adam is like a hobo for a while. Well, and he ends up signing up for another <laughs> another tour, basically. Tour, yeah, because he just doesn't know what else to do. Yeah, but then Adam changes throughout yeah. the book. I think he turns into a hobo. He turns into a hobo, but he's like this sort of eccentric, maybe a bit more romantic kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And then I think then. There's him before Kathy, mm -hmm. and then Kathy sort of breaks him, and then there's Adam after mm -hmm. Kathy, and a very different man afterward for a long time. But I don't think he's ever the same. But it's weird because, like, before Kathy, he was kind of like a drifter. He didn't have, like, um, goals or an idea of anything that he wanted to do. He, um, he would leave, and then he'd, like, come back. And Charles was working on the farm the whole time. And then when he meets Kathy and he decides that he's in love with her, he becomes like very goal driven. Then right. Very that, domestic in his yeah, aspirations. Yeah, find that property and he's going to farm it and they redo the house. And then when she shoots him and leaves. <laughs> he does all those things, to be clear. She has no part in it. She, and she's oh, very clear about no, that. No, yeah. But again, he's sort of seeing that, what he wants that, to see. Yeah, that thing kind of changes. And he's able to create this idea of, yeah, like what he'd want a life to be like, like that. And then yeah. ab abandons it yeah. as soon as she leaves. Yeah, there's just so much in this book. And then I don't know what he's doing that whole time. He's just sad for like 10 years. He, well, yeah. He's, well, he's just sort of like goes through the motions, I guess, barely. Mm -hmm. Lee really does everything. I think... He, it's hard. Money in the book is weird because it's like obviously they'll say a sum of money and it's a lot more than we think it is in current, you know. Right. So he, he's inherited a lot of money. So he doesn't have to do very much. And maybe some of it's invested or something. But it's like he lives on that inheritance for that period. Because mm -hmm. I don't think he, he doesn't farm his land. Either. No. And they never finish that house. Never finishes the house. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's done all this this fine workmanship mm -hmm. and stuff, and he fires everybody the and minute just, Kathy leaves and then just lets it. Yeah, there's the one part where I think it's when the the boys meet Abra when they're younger. Yeah. Um, oh, when they go in the house. Her, yeah, and you said you liked the scene where her dad is trying to talk to Adam about the property and, like, what's he going to uh -huh. do? He's, like, working an angle. Yeah. What is it? He oh, says, no. He gets tired. It's, it's, it's the most interesting, I think— Steinbeck, you know, you see his sort of psychological acuity, like how 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 closely he observes people, because he he's talking to these these two. They're kind of like busybody mm -hmm. types, right? And uh, he's kind of thinking, and they're asking him stuff, and he tires of the conversation basically. And he says, and then he 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 thinks of something to say, and it's a little flash of the old Adam, mm -hmm. right? Who's who's very unconventional and doesn't mind upsetting people's sensibilities, and. Uh, he he thinks in his head, he thinks, you know, I'm not running for anything. Oh. I'm not running for some office. I'm not on, on the, the school board. board. Yeah. And then he says, I've just remembered that I've forgotten to write to my brother for 10 years. Excuse me, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just, I laughed out loud mm -hmm. at that one. Yeah. Yeah, I can say whatever I want. I'm not He's on the like, school ah, board. I'm not on the school board. <laughs> 
but the boys take Abra into that old house where yeah. it's like it's like a ghost house where the yeah. workers that he'd hired were told to leave and just like abandon the tools. Everything's just sitting there. Yeah, it's just sitting there. Rusted. Brand new boards that were put up have warped and mm-hmm. yeah. And there's like the yeah. can of nails that have rusted into a clump. Yeah. This makes me want to go off. I was thinking this makes me want to go off. I felt this way after we read Jane Eyre. It makes me want to go off and read more Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. Of which, luckily, there's a lot. I still, for as much as I love Steinbeck, have not read a number of mm-hmm. them. I think, I don't even know. This is, I love this book. I love this book. You know this. I uh-huh. love this book. It's hard, though. I may love Cannery Row more. The the sh- much shorter novel, Cannery Row, which is about Monterey. And then has my favorite character in all of literature, Ed Ricketts and Doc based mm-hmm. on Ed Ricketts. They don't call him Ed Ricketts in the book. It's based on his friend, the marine biologist, Ed Ricketts, and Travels with Charlie in Search of America, which is a weird book. He wrote sort of late 1960. I think it was published in 1961, maybe. That's a really good book, too. Nonfiction about him and a poodle that go yeah. in a, like a truck trailer thing and around America on the eve. It's very full of portent, you mm-hmm. know. It's on the eve of a lot of things. You yeah. can tell. It's September 1960 when he sets out, I think. And it ends. I think it ends. just ends with, like, with Kennedy's inauguration. And like him and his, if, if I'm remembering correctly, him and his wife are invited. And they end up not going. There's like a snowstorm. So they're all dressed up just like eating popcorn in their hotel room, watching it on TV or something. <laughs> anyway. Mm. But I'd like to go back and, and read. And then read some of the other works. I don't know how they would hold up that I read in school, like you said, like The Pearl, mm-hmm. The Red Pony. You never read of Mice and Men. Never did. I know. I keep, I tr- I've tried to make references to it. Yeah. You don't get it. I've read, let's see, I've read East of Eden, Cannery Row, Travels with Charlie in Search of America, some of the nonfiction, Grapes of Wrath, Indubious Battle, which is like a union organizing book. I like that one too. Very stark though. He had this wonderful piece I've always thought about too. So- some of you out there may have read Cannery Row, which is this wonderful, weird book about Monterey. And it, it centers a lot around a bunch of characters, but it centers a lot around Doc, who's who's based on his friend, the marine biologist Ed Ricketts. And he also wrote, he wrote sort of scattered nonfiction, and there's a collection called America and Americans. And uh, he wrote like this eulogy to Ed Ricketts. It's one of the most beautiful things, you know, mm. he, where he just talks about his friend. And he has this line where he says, he sort of apologizes to everyone that if they don't recognize the Ed Ricketts they knew, that's okay. You know, there are as many Ed Ricketts as there were people who loved Ed Ricketts. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm, I digress, but it's beautiful. I think, I think that Steinbeck, he was all right, writer. <laughs> he was pretty okay. Nobel yeah. Prize. Nobel Prize. Right? Didn't he win the Nobel Prize? I'm probably. Oh, wait. Yes, it says he died in 1968, having right. won a Nobel Prize in 1962. You are right. So you really want to go. Oh, dear Lord, I want to go. I want to go to California for a number of reasons. I have a lot of sort of long-lost family history in California. Turns out, oddly enough, little did I know it. The You're land, related to the, him. The, no, no. Okay, let me start over. <laughs> I want to go to Monterey and go to the Steinbeck Museum. I mm-hmm. want to touch the truck and trailer in Travels with Charlie. But interestingly enough, it turns out, you know, I did I did some sort of genealogy and sort of reporting work on my own family. Little did I know when I read it, but the landscape of California is is one that um, I have roots in that I sort of didn't know about. So there's some other reasons that I want to go down to California. I've been to California a lot. I have never been to California. I touched down there. in San Francisco once on my way to Arizona. Mm. On my way back from Arizona? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know if airports count. I saw Alcatraz out the window. Well, that's cool. And the Golden Gate. Sure. Well, any other thoughts? Any thoughts? Well, let's uh, let's let's talk about. So, what's what's coming up on the podcast? So, uh, we are gonna try to record another episode in June uh, about pride. Try the operative word is try here, folks. And talk about pride and LGBTQ books for all different ages and i think jacob is going to come and do that with us and then in july we are going to also use the the podcast to talk about our adult book club books which we're reading in july and august austin and i are going on a road trip yes montana and wyoming he assigned me some reading for that Uh, (laughs) 
The Great Western Road Trip. Yeah. What was the book you wanted? Well, there may be a couple. We've already read The Meadow by James Galvin. That's one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Solace of Open Spaces by Gretel Ehrlich. That's definitely one. And that one's short. Real short. Great. Packs a punch, though. Um, That's about Wyoming. Yeah. And I was going to assign you something. Maybe we'll read some Hugo poems. Uh, The poet Richard Mm -hmm. Hugo, late of Montana. And we're going to stop in Missoula and visit his grave. It's going to be fun. (laughs) It's going to be fun. Lots of, we'll have lots to tell you about. Yes. So we're going to try to um, incorporate that into some literature. And then in the fall, we are going to be reading, I was going to say rereading, but I've never read it before. Jennifer has. We're going to read The Stand for our Stephen King fall that's October. Project. That's like the spooky book. Yeah, not for October. We'll probably do like September. Okay, okay. So in the stand, notoriously long, I'm assuming we'll probably tackle the uh, uncut version. And hmm. I encourage you guys to, to read it. Yeah, always read along with us. Yeah. I'm hoping we'll get uh, Elizabeth Partridge back on here again to talk mm-hmm. about the uh, the literature of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We've got a lot of exciting things yeah. to look forward to. Anything else you want to tell these good people, Becky? Um, I don't know. I... Keep reading. Keep reading. Especially with summer reading going yeah. on. Don't forget, sign up on Beanstack now. Yeah, you get prizes for your reading. You can come into the library if you want, or you can still use drive through or keeping that yeah. going. You're going to get a registration. This is everybody. You're mm-hmm. going to be able to get a registration prize. If you're an adult, you'll get, still get a registration prize. You'll get a finisher's prize. And you may, you may get the grand prize, mm-hmm. which is a curated book box, curated book box full of treats and books and things based on your own interests. Mm-hmm. And I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can visit our YouTube channel. We made like a cheesy promotional video for summer reading mm-hmm. and then all our craft programs and stuff will be on YouTube also. Yeah. 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 There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. We're getting a lot of new books in too, folks. Come on down and pick them out because they are, it's a tremendous amount of new, wonderful things coming into the library now. I think that's it. Yeah. So like I said, hopefully we'll be <laughs> recording some podcast episodes. I uh, apologize for the scattered schedule. That's just what we're dealing with right now. Yep. Um, thanks, Austin, for reading East of Eden with me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to your show? Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye. Bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.